Caloundra City Private School is an independent, non-denominational school located in Pelican Waters on the Sunshine Coast. The mantra for our school is every student matters. We aim for every child to be confident, resilient, organised, persistent and social in all aspects of their lives in and out of the classroom. This podcast series is designed to share valuable insights from academic leaders on current educational research and perspectives as we all strive to help our young people reach their potential in today's ever-changing world. In our first episode of 2018, I talked to Dr Ali Black, a highly regarded early childhood specialist who lectures in education at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Dr Black is an innovative, arts-based and narrative researcher who seeks to foster connectedness, community, well-being and meaning-making through the building of reflective and creative lives and identities. She is widely published and considered an expert in several areas of early childhood education. Dr Ali Black, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much, Tracy. I'm really delighted to be talking with you. Recently, you had an article published in the Sunshine Coast Daily uh, titled Kids Need Reassurance. You talk about the influence of disturbing news events around the world, indeed locally and nationally. What prompted your research into this area? Well, I guess there is so much research coming out and people can see it with their own eyes uh, about children and anxiety. And, uh, you know, anxiety is on the increase for children of all ages. And to be honest, um, I know that I'm feeling a little bit anxious about the times that we live in. And so perhaps there's also been a personal interest uh, looking at my own family and uh, what I'm seeing locally and nationally and globally about uh, what's happening in the global world and the sorts of challenges that are facing us. So um, it is something that I am very, very interested in about how we uh, manage in these turbulent times. The news is on at seven o'clock at night. Sometimes it's hard for the kids to avoid it. Do you actually think that children should watch the news? Well, I guess I'm giving a a personal opinion, but I am giving an informed opinion as well as I read what other people are saying about children and anxiety and particularly in relation to the news. And I think it is very important that we can switch off. And I know for um, my own family, I don't like listening to the news and my children don't like listening to the news. Um, But we have social media and we have all this technology where we're getting constant notifications. It's um, across our devices, whether we want to see it or not, we're getting advice about what's happening in the world, even if we're on Facebook or Twitter or, or anything, Instagram. Uh, we hear about these things, so it can be really difficult. So my sense is that we can't ignore things completely, we can't put our heads in the sand, but it is really important that 
we understand how our children are feeling and I think there is a time for us to remove ourselves from unnecessary stress. So um, I would recommend turning off all those notifications to actually only tune in to things that we're intentionally wanting to tune into and to be really mindful about what our children are, are hearing and, and also what we're exposing our family to as a whole. Do you think that anxiety is on the increase in children? Oh, definitely. Everything you read, uh, I read something yesterday, uh, it, it definitely, definitely is. And um, I think that it, it's a real issue that we have to be looking at. Uh, and I think schools in particular have a role to play as well as parents. I know um, my children have inadvertently picked up that the problems of the planet are facing them, that they're their problems to solve. And the humanities teacher or the science teacher may well be just trying to motivate them and, and say, you know, how will we solve climate change? And, um, you know, there may not be any fish in the sea by 2045 or whatever the latest horror statistic is uh, we need to take care because our children are actually feeling the weight of that responsibility. So I think it's a, a whole school, whole family kind of approach where we think about the messages that our children are taking on and the responsibilities that they're taking on about how these global issues are going to affect them personally. You mentioned the global issues and they are on the increase. I don't think we often make that link between the current state of affairs and how children are responding how do we how do we navigate that how do we educate children but also reassure them at the same time look i think um we're only human but i think it's our humanness that is the answer so having time to have conversations to actually talk to our children to not necessarily have the answers to go look I feel that too. And to be able to say, it's normal to feel anxious. It's normal to um, feel some kind of emotional response when you hear about a terrible news event, such as a shooting or some terrible climate catastrophe. Uh, we can't uh, pretend it hasn't happened. And so things like compassion become important. Things like listening to our children become important things like uh, giving our children ways to express themselves. So I think the arts become very important where children can, can draw pictures and can uh, write stories and, and I guess express some of these worries and fears and frustrations. But, you know, I think it can be as simple as around the, the family dinner table, talking about uh, events of the day in our, in our daily lives and things that we've heard about and having conversations and sharing our experiences of managing fear or of how we've coped with worry about strategies that we have when we're feeling a little bit overwhelmed things like um, you know taking some deep breaths or um, taking a walk out in nature and just removing ourselves from a stressful situation so we can actually enable our children with some coping strategies and to help them realize it's okay to feel anxious it actually you know is, is pretty normal we all feel anxiety at some some point how does anxiety show itself what are some of the signs to indicate your child is feeling anxious or teenager 
Look, I think there's probably a lot of um, different things that you can pick up and it's probably different for each child, uh, but it might be um, things like catastrophizing, thinking that a sound overhead could be something worse and it might be just a, you know, a noisy plane, but thinking that something awful is going to follow after that. So it might be some kind of um, unreal imagining of something. Uh, it might be withdrawing, it might be becoming very quiet, uh, it might be um, responding to things in atypical ways, so your child might, uh, you would have thought, been uh, you know quite a happy child but they seem to be snappy or irritable so I guess it's knowing your own child well and paying attention to to changes in in ways that they might typically interact with you or or behave with you um, but I would recommend looking at some websites um, you know even uh, helpful sites like Beyond Blue and um, Lifeline and some of those uh, you know there's there's children's sites just for children as well where they can um, contact people and even have a chat with someone online about their anxiety too. So lots of those sites have information about things that you could look up. You also identified that through the internet or media, children may be exposed to politicians and other famous people who should be role models but are often caught behaving badly. How do you explain this to a teenager and child? Look, again, I think it is about having conversations and uh, I think having, identifying the sorts of ways you think as a family you'd like to behave, what, what does respect look like, what does uh, listening carefully to someone look like, um, how we can as a family have certain views but maybe we need to listen to some other views and see that there are a range of perspectives. So I think illustrating that in, in your own life can be a useful thing. And I guess talking through the behaviours of particular uh, politicians and, and saying, you know, what did you think of that? And um, yeah, it, it is a tricky one because, you know, they are governing the land and, and uh, their own countries and things. Uh, so I just, I think uh, helping children set up values and, and codes of ethics and codes of conduct for themselves and I guess encouraging a bit of an activist kind of point of view too, where um, acknowledging that there are good people and perhaps pointing out some good role models too, because the news can focus on particular uh, politicians. And, you know, we all know that we've got a particular politician in America that is constantly in the news. And so um, it can be helpful to show other politicians and maybe I look at Barack Obama, for instance, who is a very ethical man who struggled with um, some of the, the policies and things that he was trying to implement, but it was values-based and uh, his different approaches. And so there are many good role models that we can introduce to children. And I know in my own family, having these sorts of discussions, both my children are actually becoming involved within their school communities and university communities with wider issues. And I suspect we might even have a politician in the family somewhere down the line because they're, they're becoming passionate about issues and seeing that our current leaders aren't uh, perhaps representing them. Now, Ali, you're a senior lecturer here in the School of Education. 
In terms of what we were just talking about with role modelling and anxiety, how do you educate today's pre-service teachers to understand and implement your research and your theories? Well, I guess when we're talking about well-being in particular, there's a lot of research about risk factors and protective factors. And for teachers and for pre-service teachers, it's really valuable for them to know that they're a protective factor. And so they have a really critical role. And there's some research that um, around protective factors that say pretty much everybody has some protective factors and some risk factors. And it kind of balances out about you know how how that's going to impact on your life and whether you're going to experience stress or how long that stress is and how resilient you're going to be and so forth but one fabulous thing out of that research says that even if if kids have all these risk factors but they have only one protective factor that can still counteract those risk factors and so the teacher is actually a protective factor so teachers who have relationships with children young people uh, who can communicate with children and young people that they care about them as people not just as uh, people who are receiving the the great content uh, that's coming through the curriculum but that the teacher knows their interests knows them as a person uh, that teacher becomes a significant protective factor in that child's life and so that's really significant it's actually really wonderful for our pre-service teachers to recognize and take on just how important their role is and so that changes their perception of I'm a teacher who has to teach this subject or that subject to I'm a teacher that actually gets to make a difference in a child's life so a child may well have a very complex family situation perhaps there's quite stressful things happening and that might range from you know divorce to um, you know a parent who's working long hours and children offending for themselves or a new baby or you know very very different um, types of stress but if they have a supportive teacher on the horizon then uh, you know that's fabulous what are some of those ways that you mentioned a few there uh, that teachers can be that protective role in a student's life? Well, you know, it's a lot about just the everyday interactions. So I'm currently working on a project with Dr. Alison Willis, who's in the School of Education also. And we've uh, surveyed teachers around uh, the sorts of things that they do to support children's well-being. And Oh, you know what we're learning from that is just how fabulous teachers are and so I'd, at this point I'd just like to um, shout out to, to teachers and go you know you're magnificent uh, but teachers who are spending time before a class begins to just have an informal chat to a child to ask how their weekend is to notice that a child's really crazy about aeroplanes and introducing that in their classroom illustration to seeing that a child might be struggling and seeing if they want to uh, you know a tutorial after after class or you know it's often those very everyday sorts of things not um, not just getting into that teacher mode but getting into the I'm interested in you as a person mode so it's actually not terribly significant strategies beyond listening to children, building relationships that are authentic with children, having a laugh, humour is really important. Uh, so, so even um, 
so that children feel that you like them you <laughs> know it's really significant and that you care enough to to say hello to them or how was your weekend so it's those very very everyday things but I mean there are teachers doing amazing things noticing that a child hasn't got lunch and organizing for the tuck shop to provide breakfasts in the morning and, and things like that so there are teachers doing amazing things uh, realizing that some families can't afford uniforms and, and you know it's really stressful so they're sourcing uniforms and and quietly you know providing that to a child whose family is struggling financially and those sorts of things so there are many teachers going above and beyond but if we're talking about um, you know my pre-service teachers really it's about recognising that relationships are central uh, and they're central in early childhood, they're central in primary, they're central in high school, they're central throughout our lives. Strong relationships actually support us and they are a critical protective factor. So if we can focus on relationships, build relationships through conversations, through um, everyday interactions that are that are positive and kind and compassionate and um, you know those listening types of, of things where we're actually interested in each other then you know we can make a huge difference. What are some of the things that teachers need to be very wary of in terms of their own behaviour maybe some old habits or uh, something that they should be aware of that they perhaps shouldn't do in a classroom and ways that you shouldn't interact that can be damaging or stressful to a student inadvertently accidentally mm. where you're not even aware that you're doing it? Yeah, look, I really think just being genuine and being authentic is really important. And, and I've been thinking about these kinds of things where sometimes we think as teachers we can't show emotion, we can't be ourselves. And, and I remember I had a, um, it's a long time ago now, that in my final PRAC experience as a pre-service teacher myself, I was on a PRAC and my mum was really, really ill. Uh, and for whatever reason I still came to prac that day and the teacher said to me that I had to forget that my mum was in hospital nearly dying and that I had to put on a mask and perform and that the children weren't to know uh, you know that there was anything going on in my life and I think that's dangerous that we don't actually admit our humanity our vulnerability and I'm not saying teachers go in and go oh you know this terrible thing happened to me but I think um, we can trust children uh, with difficult things so we can say oh today kids you know I, I am feeling uh, a little bit stressed I've got a bit of a migraine so would everybody be able to just help me and maybe we can work a little bit quieter today and I've read the work of Jonathan Sillen who is uh, an amazing educator author and and philosopher in education and, and I guess reading his work really helped me too that we can actually trust children to um, be empathetic and we can trust them with strong emotions and uh, so I think being really real so one of the dangers I would say is if we think we have to pretend that we have to know it all that we can't show emotion we can't go that worries me too or we can't say I don't know the answer to that I, I think that really helps to go I don't know the answer to that and I feel that too so so that would be definitely something that I would be saying just be just be yourself 
Yes, because there's often that um, idea of don't let your guard down, don't let, you know, don't let them, don't smile until the end of first term and things like that. Mm. But what your research is saying that it's actually better to have that real relationship mm. and uh, to be um, an, an honest, real person, whilst at the same time maintaining, you know, classroom that's, structure. That's right. But I think it has to be driven by relationship. And I think anything that a teacher does, the the consideration needs to be the child, that, that children and young people are the source of the curriculum, not the latest thing from the department or not the latest push from the, the government, that you know, in the heart of the classroom it's the relationship that, that drives things and if a child feels connected and part of something they're going to want to learn, they're going to feel a sense of trust, there's going to be a culture of respect that exists in that classroom. So all those behaviour challenges, well a lot of them, maybe not all of them, um, but a lot of them um, become irrelevant because that relationship is the foundation of everything that happens in that classroom. Well that's a, a lovely lead into the second uh, article I wanted to discuss with you Ali. Um, you wrote an article called Make Passion a Priority and in it you said that it's high time we let our children engage with learning that they love. Why is this so important? Well I think if you um, can if you've had any kind of interactions with a young child. So pretty much from the moment they're born, they're curious. They're trying, they're like a little sponge, they're soaking in everything, they're looking at everything. And then as soon as they're able, they start playing, they start making things, they're singing and dancing. You know, even before they can walk, I saw a friend posted a, a YouTube of her, of her granddaughter who's, you know, I don't know, a few months old and there's some Irish music playing and she's moving her legs to the jig. So, so I mean, children are ready to respond and, and they're loving life and soaking it in. And so children have this natural curiosity and, and I would recommend people if they haven't encountered Ken Robinson and his fabulous TED talk, um, Do Skills Kill Creativity, to, to go and take a look and to Google Ken Robinson. But he is an awesome uh, advocate for the importance of, of passion and, uh, and the arts. And so what happens is children have this, this wonderful um, inbuilt thing to play and to love life and to be curious and then somehow uh, particularly in Australia not so in Denmark and Sweden and some of those places but particularly in Australia we decide that oh play no 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 we've got to stop playing we've got to do readers and we've got to write sentences that are this long and uh, we've got to do things in very structured ways and we're going to make children sit down and we're going to teach them how to use glue and cut with scissors and uh, becomes very very skill orientated and very very narrow and so children um, and the, and the statistics around this is pretty frightening as well. Children are losing their love of learning and they're actually doing what we were talking about at the start. They're getting anxious and stressed because the learning isn't responsive to their normal ways of being in the world, which are playful ways and artistic ways and aesthetic ways and passionate ways. So I think it's really, really critical that passion is a priority that we look to uh, children's curiosities. And the article that you're talking about, I guess I, I wrote because I was so thrilled. Um, my child's school, school 
brought in an elective. So she's at high school and they brought in an elective, I think it may have even been called the Passion Project, where children could decide what it is that they wanted to do, set their own goals for uh, something that they were passionate about that they wanted to learn more about, gather some mentors who they knew had some expertise in that area or talents in that area, have conversations with them, let that feed their ideas and come up with their own project that was just theirs and uh, it was an individualised, personalised, passion driven, inquiry driven focus and so I think inquiry is probably a critical thing there also that giving children opportunities to inquire not the right answer don't regurgitate you know the, the the right wrong answer and I tell you whether you're right or wrong let's inquire let's find out let's theorize so you know that opens up education and that's the kind of thing we need for these global problems we need children to be able to inquire theorize experiment invent come up if it's just right wrong answers um, you know, it's a bit scary, <laughs> you know, what education is preparing our children for. Is it preparing children for the, the co complex future they're entering? How do we use those inquiry-based teaching strategies to deliver the current curriculum? Look, I think there needs to be a shake-up and I have been really vocal about this in my edu educational columns and in the things that I write. I think that um, the the government is, um, you know, it's got its fingers in the, the educational pie and teachers have lost a whole lot of autonomy and many teachers feel constrained that they have to teach this very standardised kind of curriculum and I think, I think teachers have to maybe be a little bit activist, talk with their school communities, talk with parents, uh, talk about what really matters for education and what do we as a community think is the purpose of education so that there's some supported whole school approaches where the commitment is um, you know what what that school values and, and wants for children and wants want children to experience and then I think we have to trust teachers they're knowledgeable they know children well what's the point of teaching a standard curriculum that doesn't fit an individual child's life experience there's little point it's it's just ticking a box to say I've taught that content so I think we need to uh, really stop as a as a local community but as a society and go what is the purpose of education and what do we want for our children what sort of education is going to enrich them and help them become whole fabulous um, people who can cope with stress and anxiety and can look forward to the future and manage the future with great hope and well-being can you also um, relate that to the senior curriculum as well as the junior curriculum? Well, I guess, you know, I have to um, be upfront and say, you know, my area is, is not senior curriculum. Uh, it's adult education and early childhood education uh, specifically. I guess it's a little more challenging in a secondary area where there is content that has to be covered and we have got things like... Um, well, the OP score type system that's now, I, I know, being removed, but that kind of thing where, where students are getting a score that's going to give them an entry in pathway into university. But I still 
I still think that if a teacher knows their group of children, they can use their interests and, and curiosities. And if they have an inquiry approach, they can still get through some of that content. And I recognise again, there's some there's some subject areas like maths where you just have to learn the formula, but maybe you can apply that formula in a real world context for um, some come up with a range of solutions. Maybe there isn't one right answer. Maybe there's different ways to work out how you might use that. And again, I have to acknowledge that maths isn't my thing. So I'm probably, um, you know, someone else will have a, a much more informed commentary. But I think inquiry approaches work for most things. And if we look to our own lives and how we learn, usually we learn from doing. Usually we learn from uh, problem solving, from having something that we're faced with and using the tools and skills and understandings that we have and you know, applying them for a real purpose. So I think making things real and relevant for children is also really important. So I guess giving teachers the freedom, allowing teachers to have time where they get to know their children, uh, inquiry processes, valuing creativity and critical thinking. And I think it's the processes that become really important, those kind of uh, critical thinking processes. Ali, when I was reading your article, I loved this question that you said teachers, as teachers, we should ask ourselves, would you like to be a student in your own classroom? It's such a great question to consider. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I need to acknowledge that it's not my question. Um, I was reading <laughs> Angela Myers and Amy Sandbold's book. It's called The Passion Driven Classroom. And they have a series of books actually around uh, responding to children in ways that support their passion and inquiry. So if people, if listeners want to follow that up, um, that might be a good place to begin. And so Angela was actually, this is where her whole desire to create a passion-driven classroom came from is she reflected on uh, her day's teaching and went, oh, you know, I wouldn't even want to be a student in my classroom. <laughs> and she reflected on all the um, restrictions and all the, the dry approaches and, and, and just kind of went, yeah, you know, no wonder they're not interested because I'm bored and I don't like it and and so that was a real impetus for her to change her teaching style emphases approaches and and come up with some other ways and I think it um, for me uh, across my research uh, I always ask people to reflect on their own lives because we get a lot of insight so actually reflecting back to who are the teachers who have inspired us? When were we excited about learning? Uh, and you know, for teachers to go, would I have wanted to be a, a kid in my class today? They're really important questions because we can connect with them and we can see for ourselves exactly um, what matters. So yeah, I think engaging in some of those reflections are really useful and it is a really great question, isn't it? Ultimately, as a teacher, we would like our students to be engaged in our subject. If they uh, love the subject and they have that love of learning, are their learning outcomes likely to improve? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, if you've got a, a student or a child or a young person, I kind of prefer talking about children and young people rather than students, actually, because it gets us back in touch that, that we're teaching people. Mm. Um, it, you know, we know from ourselves, I know for myself, if, if I um, am being inspired, if 
the teacher is connecting to something that seems relevant to me in my life or something that that um, connects me to something that's interesting then I'm going to listen I'm going to try harder if I've got a relationship with that teacher and I see it in my own children the teachers that they have relationships with that they know that teachers get them have a bit of a laugh with them they try harder you can see it on the report card there are A's all over the place but the teachers who don't get them who are worried you know about whether they've got their laces tied the right to the left or you know something very narrow you know children turn off young people turn off uh, all that stuff about I mean there's so many great writers out there but if we were to look at Ken Robinson again he's got a fabulous book called The Element and he talks about all these successful people and you know Paul McCartney is one who teachers didn't see that he had talents and interests and I think he even went to to some university that said you know he wouldn't be any good at music well you know he followed his passion and he found some in uh, some mentors who could see his passion and fostered that passion and you know there's all these examples in Ken Robinson's book about helping people who um, you know have particular ways of thinking and interests and talents and uh, curiosities and feeding those and fueling those and they've gone on to do amazing things and there's clear links in the research about um, academic performance if a child feels well if a child feels understood um, their interests are being considered if there's a relationship there they're going to try harder, they're going to invest in their own learning because there's a reason to, they feel safe, trusted, protected, valued. They're going to perform better because, you know, they want to and their heart's in it as well as their mind. So absolutely, absolutely, if, um, if we can engage children and feed that love of learning that is innately within them, we're going to have great academic outcomes. So for me, that's what uh, education needs to return to and make sure it focuses on every day. In order to inspire students, I think as a teacher, you have to remain inspired yourself. Teachers are only human after all. How can teachers look after themselves to make sure that they have that passion and love of the classroom and working with young people? Yeah, that's really important and, you know, I think our teachers uh, do a fabulous job and self-care is really, really important and self-care can take many forms. It can just mean, um, you know, having your weekend sacred where you're not doing planning and you're not uh, writing report cards and things and I know there are times when you do have to work out out of hours but I think preserving time where you can get out in nature you can walk the beach you can listen to your own imaginings you can be part of that singing group you can um, you know get out with the woodwork and and create something with your hands or you know whatever your particular passion is I think it's important to feed it I also um, for myself and so I know this is valuable for me but I think it's important to read widely and we have the great resource of the internet where there's some fabulous inspiring blogs there's fabulous inspiring writers like Adam Grant and Ken Robinson and um, you know, you know, there's millions of, of sites out there where you can go and feed ideas and get different perspectives so reading widely and, and reading um, different people's ideas like Carol Dweck and thinking about uh, 
those ideas around grit and resilience and, and reading things like protective factors and all of those sorts of things. I think helping to understand how important our role is, but yeah, coming back to feeding our own passions, I just think we need to make time and, and that can be tricky uh, to do, but, but time out to imagine, to be creative, to daydream and to connect with other people, I think they're all really important things. I think that's a wonderful message and it's been wonderful chatting to you today. Dr. Ali Black, thank you so much. Thanks, Tracy. I've loved every minute. And I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Ali Black from the University of the Sunshine Coast. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Black's research, go to the staff profiles on the university website. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks for listening.